0: Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Luke's telling of the resurrection account that is before that is before our hearts and our faith, our eyes and ears this morning. And we do pray that you would impress it ever more upon our lives, that you would direct our faith to understand what Christ has accomplished more fully and more deeply. And indeed, that that faith might then find expression in how we live our lives to your honor and glory and in obedience to your word. Help us and strengthen us for these things by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What has the past week, Holy Week, been like for you? Was it what you'd hoped? a time for deeper reflection upon the work of Christ, a time to immerse yourself in the services of Thursday and Friday night, a week in which you spent perhaps more time in prayer and contemplation of the work of Christ so that you feel as though your heart is even better prepared than usual for today. Maybe that sounds almost idyllic. And if that was your experience, then I don't begrudge it for a moment, but I'd be be willing to guess that That wasn't the experience for the vast majority of us. Now, some of you were occupied, and rightly so, with getting your house in order for Easter Sunday, planning out your meal, making sure everything was ready. Others had to deal with illness, perhaps losing sleep on account of it. Maybe you had to work overtime for one reason or another, or even had to deal with the loss of power on account of Tuesday night's storms. For many, there was the daily routine of work and or school and all that entails or maybe something broke that needed fixing that you didn't anticipate. Or maybe for any number of other reasons, you actually found yourself spending less time in prayer and meditating upon God's Word um, than is your normal habit. I suppose the list of scenarios could go on and on for as many people as are present here this morning. Well, the circumstance that Jesus was crucified and buried certainly wasn't what the disciples had expected to happen, despite Jesus telling them so on multiple occasions. Even the women who appear in our text are in a similar condition, a similar dejected state of mind mourning the death of Jesus. All the hopes of deliverance, all the aspirations for what Jesus would accomplish as the Messiah have been dashed as far as his followers are concerned. And so they come into this first day of the week having endured, and even some witnessing it, the death of Jesus without any anticipation of what actually is going to take place. And for as much as we read the Gospels and what Jesus said, we find it hard to understand why the disciples, why his followers didn't get it, why they didn't understand that Jesus would rise again. But they clearly didn't, which is integral to Luke's resurrection account. But perhaps the misunderstanding stems not from understanding the resurrection. But perhaps the misunderstanding stems from not understanding the resurrection, and maybe it would be good for us to consider what it is as well. You know, think about it. What what does it mean to be resurrected? Well, we might initially answer by saying that it means to be brought back to life. And that's, that's not bad, a fairly simple answer, and one that's basically true. Our basic conception of resurrection is that someone or something that was dead is alive again. And that's a foundational understanding of what we read in Luke 24 and what we're celebrating this Lord's Day. Jesus was dead, but now he's alive again. He's been resurrected. Certainly that's fundamental to Orthodox Christianity and is what we plainly confess in our creeds even as we did just moments ago in the Nicene Creed. But is that all there is to resurrection? Now, maybe you think, well, is that all? Well, that's, that's pretty important, don't you think? To be dead, and, but then be made alive again. What more needs to be said than that? Well, again, that point isn't being disputed. But I want to contend that there's more to resurrection, to the resurrection, than just this. That our understanding of the resurrection needs to be expanded and deepened. And to do so, we must begin with the resurrection of Jesus. For it's there that resurrection is profoundly defined and displayed. Now, to further make the case that resurrection is something more than being brought back from the dead, I want you to remember what takes place in John chapter 11. You know, what does Jesus do there for his friend Lazarus? He raises him from the dead, doesn't he? He brings him back to life. He resurrects him. And yet we're not willing to say that Lazarus and Jesus' resurrections are identical, are we? No, we're not, because Lazarus would die again, whereas Jesus does not. There's something qualitatively different about Jesus' resurrection. There's something more going on than simply his being raised from the dead. Again, that's vitally important. And I don't want you to think that I'm saying that it isn't a significant detail, because it is. But that's not all there is to it. In the resurrection, Jesus introduces a new life, a new kind of life that is more than simply being revived into the old life. In the resurrection, Jesus is introducing this new life and it's important to make that distinction and it's helpful for us to at least attempt to think about it even though it's hard for us to get our minds around what what that life will be like sure there are things in the new life that will be very much like our present life but all of it without the taint of sin all of it without the pall of death over it all without decay or pain or sorrow And because we're so used to these things in this life, it's genuinely challenging for us to imagine what it will be like to have a resurrected body. And naturally we think, well, I won't have to struggle with sin anymore. And won't that be glorious? And surely any physical ailments or limitations that we might presently know will be no more. And won't that be great? Yes, it will be marvelous. But we still struggle to get our minds around these ideas because we still inhabit our sin infested bodies. We still live in a sin-plagued world. We can't objectively step outside of them as much as we might want to. We operate and think within a certain framework, and it's hard to get ourselves beyond that. So just as our overly simplistic view of the resurrection may affect our thinking of what we read here in Luke 24, so our continuing condition also affects it. And because we know the story of the resurrection so well, we're not really surprised by anything that we've heard thus far this morning. We know what this morning's story is is about. And yet I wonder if our perception is still somewhat very limited. Really, we're not in such a different place than Jesus' followers, the men and women, in not understanding. Like them, we too are fairly slow to understand the resurrection, perhaps even slower than the disciples themselves in some respects. But we also have to understand why Jesus' resurrection was unexpected despite what Jesus had told them. You know, Go back to John 11 when Jesus is speaking with Martha, Lazarus' sister, and note her response to Jesus' statement that her brother will rise again. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You see, the Jewish expectation was for a final corporate resurrection at the last day, not a resurrection in the middle of history by an individual. This conception of the resurrection was so thoroughly ingrained that it's no wonder that they were so often perplexed by Jesus' statements. So not only did Jesus talk about a Messiah who hardly met their expectations, but he also talked about the timing of resurrection that didn't make any sense to them either. And this mentality is artfully and clearly seen in Luke's portrayal of the resurrection account. So let's begin to look at some of the details and consider the bearing they have for us as the church today. First of all, we need to go back to chapter 23, don't we? we? We read at the beginning of chapter 24, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Who are the they being referred to? Well, the women, of course, as we read of in verses 55 and 56. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And notice a couple of things. The women are from Galilee. They're northern girls. They're from where Jesus was from. And they clearly saw where the tomb was and how the body was laid. These aren't unimportant details and further support the veracity of Luke's resurrection account. And then notice what they do. They return and prepared spices and ointments. Why? Because Jesus was dead and they fully expect expected to find a dead Jesus on Sunday morning when they went back to the tomb. But Jesus doesn't cooperate with their plans, does he? He he decides to be difficult. The women arrive at the tomb, find the stone rolled away, and upon entering the tomb, don't find Jesus' body. And just like Martha, they had confidence in the resurrection at the last day, but never expected it now. The women need an explanation of what's going on, and they receive one from two men as to what's going on who in verse 23 are referred to as angels. And here we do well to make some connections with previous portions of Luke's gospel. Back in chapter 9 at the transfiguration, you recall that Jesus met with two men, Moses and Elijah, and that Jesus' clothes became dazzling white. As we've noted on previous occasions, if you can imagine a sustained flash of lightning, such as the lightning we, many of us saw Tuesday night during the storm, then that's what you should imagine Jesus' clothes looking like on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now, the two men here in verse 4 of our text. It's the same word, and Luke wants us to connect the two scenes. The glimpse of resurrection glory beheld in chapter 9 comes into fuller view here in chapter 24. But not only should we go back to chapter 9, but also all the way back to the opening chapters of Luke's Gospel. Remember that it was by angelic announcement of, the angelic announcement of Gabriel to Zechariah that we hear of the redemptive work that God, of God that is about to take place. And then there's Gabriel's announcement to Mary and the angelic announcement of Jesus' birth to the shepherds. You know, Luke basically begins and ends his gospel with all these important messages from angels regarding God's work of salvation in the world. And not only that, but also compare how Zechariah reacts to the message he receives from Gabriel. He really doesn't believe it, does he? Here are the disciples' response to the women in verse 11, or Peter's response in verse 12 is basically the same. They don't believe it. What's more, if we draw comparisons to Mary in chapter 1, along with her counterparts here in chapter 24, we note that the women are quicker to believe than the men. Now, besides being a, kind of a, a cool form of a literary and structural standpoint, what, what might be Luke's reason for crafting his narrative in this fashion? Well, it seems to be that Luke is basically saying that all that was promised in the prologue in the opening chapters of the book are now coming to pass in the Easter story. And don't miss the fact that it takes messengers from heaven, that it takes teachers sent by God to explain what's going on to the women. You know, they don't have dreams. God doesn't speak to them in prayer or in some private way, but sends two men, two angels Two messengers to verify the veracity, to establish the testimony of the resurrection. And so what makes up the message of the angels to the women? What is it that they say? First of all, they begin with a question. Why do you seek the living with the dead? And the language there could even be interpreted the living one. When we stop and think about it, There's a sense that Jesus is the only living one after a fashion, at least at this point in history, at this juncture in the story of redemption. You know What does Paul teach us in 1 Corinthians 15.23 that we heard just a few minutes ago? That Christ is the first fruits. He's the first one resurrected into the new world, the new creation, the new life, and it's precisely through his resurrection that they come to pass that they're inaugurated. The angel's question to the women isn't so different. As Jesus' words to the Sadducees, who denied the resurrection, back in chapter 20. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And the angels continue with that glorious announcement. He is not here, but has risen. And then notice what they say next. It's it's actually a command. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So the, the angels command the women to remember and the women receive this heavenly communication and then what happens as a result? They, in fact, remember. But what are they to remember? What Jesus told them. And notice that the angels assume that the women heard Jesus' teaching, which in fact they did. You know, the women go from perplexity to clarity based on the angels' command to remember. And this wasn't simply remember as, to, as a form of recollection, but a remembering that involves understanding and insight of the things recalled. In this case, they remember Jesus' teaching, the teaching in Galilee. The teaching that we read about back in chapter 9. After Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, Jesus explicitly says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Then in the same chapter, shortly after the transfiguration, Jesus says to the disciples again, Let these words sink into your ears. What an intro to a statement. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of man. Then in chapter 18, as they were making their way to Jerusalem, Jesus would say as much to the twelve, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. We even hear the refrain of the title Son of Man in each case, which carries messianic overtones from Daniel 7, and was a way Jesus often referred to himself. The angels use the language that Jesus used. And the women are to connect the dots. They're to remember. But notice the importance of Jesus' words and the angels' words. What purpose do they serve? Well, they explain what's going on. In other words, the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection is interpreted by the divinely revealed word. In and of themselves, the women wouldn't have been able to understand the significance of the empty tomb. And this fact establishes a pattern for faith in the resurrected Christ, a fact evidenced through the rest of Scripture that belief in the risen Christ requires the Word of God to be declared. You know, Why do you believe that Jesus is risen? Because God, by His Word, has told you Jesus is risen. That was the case for the women and still the case today. As is evidenced in the gospel message that the Lord gives to the apostles and to the church, the same message that goes forth today. And I want you to especially know what the angels say in verse 7. In fact, arguably verse 7 is at the center of the resurrection account if we include the last couple verses of chapter 23. What the angels say to the women isn't recorded in any of the other resurrection accounts. We mentioned Son of Man language already, but notice as well the phrase must be delivered. That phrasing employs uh, the word that we've encountered on a number of occasions in recent weeks that can also read, it is necessary. It is necessary for the Son of Man to be delivered. It tells us that the death of Jesus was of divine necessity. It's the same word used back in chapter 9 and verse 22 when Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer. It is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer. It's also used later here in chapter 24 and verse 26 when Jesus is with the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And notice what else the angels are doing. They're tying the language of the passion to the resurrection. They mention Jesus' betrayal, delivered into the hands of sinful man, crucified. Jesus is violently executed by wicked and evil men. And on the third day rise. See, the the angels are echoing what the women have been told by Jesus, and by incorporating these allusions to the other passion statements, they're reaffirming, they're affirming that the suffering and resurrection of Jesus are part of the divine plan, as foretold by the ancient scriptures and by Jesus Himself. And that's what Luke is impressing upon his readers. This is all part of, if not the climax, of this orderly account that Luke is writing to Theophilus, that he may have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. Recall from the early chapters of, of Luke, the focus upon Jesus' identity and the angelic affirmations along the way. And now here at the end of Luke's story, we have them again. So how do the women react? Well, they do, in fact, remember. And then they return to tell the eleven and the others. And Luke's notation of names in verse 10 is interesting because two of the women, Mary Magdalene and Joanna, are specifically mentioned by Luke in chapter 8 as women who accompanied Jesus and the twelve. Mary, the mother of James, is also mentioned. Her precise identity isn't completely clear. And the other women with them. And it's this group of women that go and tell the apostles, the disciples, what they've seen and heard. So what's their reaction? Well, to the apostles it seemed an idle tale, empty nonsense, empty talk. The only use of this particular word in the New Testament. And notice how that indicates that the disciples weren't hoping against hope that Jesus wasn't really dead or that they were so enamored with Jesus that they would just believe the first story they heard that he was back to life. No, as as one writer puts it, they were as skeptical as if they had passed through the Enlightenment in advance. They don't believe the women's message, whose message also included what the angels had told them. At this point, all the apostles are just like Thomas. They don't have faith that Christ is resurrected. And the way that Luke is telling the story, it's as if he wants you to draw comparisons between the women and the apostles, and particularly Peter. Now to Peter's credit, he goes to the tomb himself and the last time we heard about him was back in chapter 22 when he wept bitterly over his betrayal of Jesus. He doesn't believe the women's report, but at least he goes, unlike the others. And notice the way in which Luke has structured the story. The women and Peter visit the the empty tomb and both both come away with, with differing perspectives on what the empty tomb means. In the case of the women... They come away from the empty tomb declaring Christ is risen. They act as the first apostles, so to speak, announcing the good news. you know They're the apostles, the sent ones to the apostles after a fashion. And although the angels don't command them to tell the others, at least in Luke's telling of the story, they do so anyway. They go and find the, uh, the, the disciples and all the rest. Contrast that with Peter. He goes to the tomb, finds it empty. What is his reaction? He marvels a word used in relation to people's response to Jesus' miracles, but it doesn't necessarily connote faith. And then he goes home. And that's quite a contrast with the women. They go find the others and can't stop talking about what they've seen and heard. And Peter goes home, apparently having nothing to say to anyone. Isn't that interesting? And what is the profound difference between their respective empty tomb experiences? The women heard God's messengers and believe the message. Peter and the others receive the message, but don't believe it. It's also worth noting the way in which the empty tomb brackets Luke's entire resurrection account. Luke's story basically begins and ends with an empty tomb, which is marvelous writing, and with two very different reactions to that empty tomb. And you you just have to appreciate the detail of verse 12. Peter getting up and running to the tomb, getting there and stooping and looking in. It's a vivid description. Can't you just picture him ducking his head down and gazing in and finding nothing but the linen cloths by themselves? The women didn't find the body, neither does Peter. All that is left are the grave clothes. And what does that tell Peter? Well, one, that Jesus' body wasn't stolen. Thieves wouldn't have taken the time to remove the grave clothes, but he still doesn't know what to do with the evidence his eyes have seen. And just as the baby wrapped in strips of cloth was a sign to the shepherds of the Messiah's birth, so now the linen cloths alone are a sign of the Messiah's resurrection. But Peter's left marveling and not understanding, at least for a time until later in the chapter when Jesus appears to Simon Peter. But there's no doubting, according to Luke, that Jesus' tomb is empty. And why is it empty? Because Jesus is resurrected. His body has been raised from the dead as a new and glorious body, not just a revived mortal body. Jesus is not a ghost or a visible spirit of some kind or an angel. Neither is he in an intermediate state awaiting a time when he will finally be raised from the dead. He's not metaphorically resurrected. As one New Testament scholar puts it, he is already risen. He is already as a human being exalted into the presence of God. He is already ruling the world, not simply in a divine capacity, but precisely as a human being, fulfilling the destiny marked out for the human race from the sixth day of creation. And because of this fact, and because we believe in a God who made a world of time, space, and matter, who is set about renewing it, then the resurrection of christ is the very inauguration of that renewal. See, we have to understand that resurrection isn't just about our souls living forever nor is it about going to heaven when we die. When you stop and when you step back and look at what the apostles and early church taught and said, you will find that very seldom they very seldom speak about going to heaven as we find ourselves so commonly speaking today. Their focus was not on where you'll be instantly after death but where you'll be in God's new world, His new creation. And in that world, you'll be a newly embodied self. As Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, the corruptible will put on the incorruptible. The mortal will put on the immortal. At last, we will receive our spiritual bodies. Don't think of that as referring to a non-physical body, which is our tendency. Rather, understand that our new glorified bodies will be animated by the Holy Spirit and not by the natural flesh inherited from Adam. Paul in Romans 8, verses 9 and 11 writes, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. New life for the mortal body. That's what Paul is saying and that's what's evidence in Christ's resurrection. We have a preview of what is to come. Again, remember the expectation of the day was for everyone to be resurrected at the last. But the message of the resurrection has been transformed in Christ. The message of the church is not the same as that of the Jews. The resurrection has happened to one person, Jesus the Son of God, and that being true, God's new creation has already begun. And when we think about the significance of Easter, it's precisely this point that is vital for us to grasp. Yes, the bodily resurrection means being raised from the dead, but that means there's life. After death, Life on the other side of death, not disembodied bliss. And it's this life, in part, that we experience even now as we await the fullness of the new heavens and the new earth at last. Resurrection is central and vital to Christianity. Or as one scholar puts it, the resurrection is the single event through which the world was changed forever. And that's good news. And that's the best news. And it's... Christ's victory over sin and death and the new life that has come in him that we are to proclaim and that we are to even live out. And if you want to know what the resurrected life looks like between the resurrection of Jesus and the final resurrection, go read all the New Testament epistles because they have a lot to say about it. So this is the message that Jesus has given to us. This is what he's told us. And surely it's good for us to remember his teaching. For us to be instructed according to his word. And really, instruction in God's word is basically what the rest of Luke's gospel is occupied with. You know, what's Jesus mainly about after his resurrection? Holding Bible studies. He opened up the scriptures to the two disciples on their way to Emmaus and does the same for the eleven and those gathered with them. Jesus' word is the basis for faith, and especially for your faith in the resurrection. And here's a good reminder for us of the centrality of God's word to our faith. What he has objectively told us versus the subjective experience that is sometimes emphasized in Christian circles. You know, there can be a tendency to gauge what we believe by what or how we feel at any particular moment. Well, that's not a particularly reliable way to go about the life of faith because our feelings can deceive us. Or simply be wrong. Maybe some of you didn't even feel like coming to church this morning for any number of reasons. But you're here, and that's good. Because the testimony of Jesus, the word of Jesus, is a far better anchor for faith than our emotions, regardless of their intensity. Jesus said he would be raised after three days. He told his followers this ahead of time. The angels at the empty tomb confirm the words of Jesus. The women at the tomb confirm the words of the angels, which confirms the word of Jesus. And even though the disciples, apostles, would be slower to get there, they too confirm the words of Jesus, that he's resurrected from the dead. And because he's resurrected, then those who are in him, those who've been baptized into Christ who are members of His body, the church, we are called to a form of the resurrection life in this life, here and now, even as we have been made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what have we been enlivened to pursue? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. A kingdom and righteousness that is declared and displayed in the gospel, which is expressed in the world, by the church, through the word and sacraments, and through our life as a community. Something unexpected has happened. Jesus has risen from the dead. Heaven and earth have been forever changed. Even the grave has been transformed, and death has lost its sting, and Jesus' supremacy over all his creation, over every man, woman, and child, over every nation and ruler is to be proclaimed. This comprises the message of our evangelism. And the message of the gospel also includes a call to obedience to all that Christ has commanded. And so we give ourselves to his word, to the diligent study of it, that we might remember what he has said and further cultivate an obedient faith. All of life has been changed. Let us sing about it. Let us live it. Let's declare it in word and at, and at the table, in partaking of bread and wine, these signs that further testify to Jesus' victory. Begin this new week, renewed again, to pursue the new life that you have in Christ, the life of the resurrection. Let us pray. Almighty God, we celebrate today the victory of Jesus Christ over death. As we have heard your word of grace Inspire us by the power of your Spirit, that we may respond with joy and boldness in declaring our union with Christ, share in the feast of His victory, live in the power of His resurrection through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who now lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever. Alleluia. Amen.